1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. These four verses sort of uh, capture the themes of this letter. And so I'm going to uh, read these four themes, and then we'll look at more of the person of John. We're going to back up and look at the Gospels and, and, and Mark and see how his story sort of develops so that we would know the man that is behind the letter of 1 John and the Gospel of John and, and Revelation. So if you'll read with me in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, we read, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the world. Down to verse 26. These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie. And just as it is taught you, you abide in him. Down to chapter 5, verse 11. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us now as we work our way through it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you'd flip back over to Mark chapter 1, we will come to those last four verses, the themes of 1 John, sort of at the, at the end. I, I'm probably going to be the first person to be kicked out of the church because I do horrible with fill in the blanks. After the last service, I don't even know why I attempted this. I should have just given you the answers. I don't like being constrained to, to certain numbers and to give you certain, you know, blanks to fill in. So I'm, I may or may not actually cover the answers. I'll start on the first one because it's the easiest. Uh, we want to look at the person of John. Who was he? What's his story? Because it very much helps us to understand the letters that he wrote. The first thing is, is that John is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, often this, this background to him, this, this information it gets kind of placed together with the painting that was painted by whoever it was of John at the, the Last Supper. He's wearing a robe of silk and looks sort of effeminate and he's laying his head on Jesus's breast. And so we get this picture of that he's sort of like the, the hippie apostle, the, the apostle of love. And, and he just was really a, a, a gentle man. 
It couldn't be farther from the truth. As we look at him, he was a very rough and wild young man. He is introduced to us in Mark chapter 1. I believe it's in verse 16. He's in the Sea of Galilee. There's John with his brother James, Peter, all of these fishermen who were tough, hardened fishermen were fishing. Jesus approaches and he calls them to follow after him, which they immediately do. They drop their nets. As I look at my fill in the blank, that word met, I would probably change. But the thing is, we already printed these inserts. And the reason that I would probably change it is I don't know that this is where Jesus met John and James and Peter, even though it's the first place that they're introduced of their lives crossing as far as the, um, the gospels are concerned. There's a group of scholars that are, I'm kind of on the fence. We can't know for certain, but it's believed that it's possible that John was the cousin of Jesus, the first cousin. And their reason for thinking is as you take a look at all four of the gospels and you go to the, the story of Jesus on the cross, there's uh, four women that are, that are mentioned in all of the accounts Mary, the mother of Jesus, is always present. Mary Magdalene is present. There's another Mary who I think was either the wife or the mother of Cleopas. I forget. I think it's the wife, but I'm drawing a blank right now. And then there's this other person that's always mentioned. But that name doesn't remain consistent through the, through the, through the three other Gospels or three Gospels. In one place, we're told, um, I think this is in... Uh, John 19.25, we're told that, uh, I, and I could get this wrong, it's, it's John 19.25, Mark 15.40, and then Matthew 27, on all these accounts. One of them says that Mary was there with her sister. So this woman's kind of identified as Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister. In another account, there's a woman that's, how I've remembered it, is salami, because salami is my favorite meat on sandwiches. But I think it's really pronounced Salome or something along those lines. But so there's this lady identified as Salami or Sal- I have Salami. I don't know what it is. They weren't Italian. I know that much. But Salome or Salome. We'll, we'll move on because now I, we're too close to lunch for me to be talking about Salami. And then in another account, this lady is mentioned as the wife of Zebedee. And we know that James and John were the sons of Zebedee. And so because of this, we, you can't know with certainty, but there's, it's a possibility that John could have been Jesus' first cousin. Without a question, throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus treated John as a kid brother. They were very, very close. Uh, we know that, uh, let me get back to my numbers here. Um, so they follow their nets, Mark chapter 1. As we move into Mark chapter 3, the, the, the crowds had started building and multiplying and following after Jesus. And Jesus had to pare back the crowds because he wanted to focus on the 12. And in, in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, we see that he, he identifies the 12 disciples that would then follow him and be selected to kind of, that he would be their rabbi and he would teach them and train them. In verse 17, we, or verse 16, we see that Simon was called also to whom he gave the name Peter. Peter's always listed as first. He was sort of the leader of the early church. He was likely the oldest of all of the guys. 
Then we see that James was there. The son of Zebedee, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. James was the older brother. John was the youngest. It's believed that John was the youngest of all of the disciples. And as he's calling these 12, the first three, Peter, James, and John, they have a very special relationship with Jesus. Throughout the gospel, these three guys get special access to certain events. Um, Some events we'll look at. But as I see this story unfolding, Jesus at some point gives them a nickname. And I picture Jesus with a smirk on his face. James and John, you guys get over here. We're going to call you Bonergies or whatever. (laughs) Boenergies, which means sons of thunder. Sons of, wait, this is the apostle of love, Jesus. What are you talking about? Well, he knew these guys. These guys had energy, zeal, sort of unrefined. When we read about the apostle of love, we fail to see that that's from his own writing, that in John's writings, he never refers to himself. When he writes about himself, he simply refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And we see this reorientation of his life. said, I'm just this guy that Jesus loved. He wrote likely as an 80-year-old or 85-year-old man at the end of his life after God had done much work. But during the Gospels, he's a son of thunder. He was radical. He was, he was led into certain situations. So chapter 3, with the story, things start happening. He gets his nickname. And in chapter 9 of Mark, if we'll turn there, this very... Uh, I would, I would qualify this as a, as a miraculous event. In Mark chapter 9, verse 2, we see the transfiguration of Jesus. Not all of the disciples were allowed into this situation. Or this, this event is probably the better picture. Peter, James, and John are brought up onto the mountain. And the transfiguration is literally a transformation. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, when we read... Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word transformation is transfiguration. And it's the the picture of what you've been created in Christ. Let that come out. And so here Jesus in his earthly ministry amongst these three guys, he exposes himself in deity for who he was. We're told that he shone brightly, that it was just this bright whiteness. These guys were terrified. And then Moses and Elijah appear, these pillars of Judaism. And in the midst of this, verse 6, I love this. It says, for he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Yeah, I would be terrified. And that's a sort of a caveat to what Peter said. Peter's there in his nervousness, terror, like what happened to Jesus? And that's Moses and that's Elijah. He says, Rabbi, it's good for us here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And we'll just sort of set up camp and worship you here. We don't have to go anywhere. But that wasn't a part of his plan. But this was amazing. And Jesus, as they walk down from the hill, he says, don't tell anybody what you saw. So their mouths are are sort of zipped. But I think that their their zeal and their zealousness Zeal and zealousness. Zeal and passion. There's synonyms. You can't use both of them. So zeal, their their elitism, 
They're thinking that they were more special than other people because they were allowed into this this very special moment with Christ. They began placing themselves over others. John and his brother, verse 6, were very intense with their self-centeredness. Mark 10.35. So if we turn the page, we get to this great uh, place. We see James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. They came to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Don't laugh at them. We've all been there. (laughs) We've all been there. Lord, we want you to do whatever we ask. (laughs) I'm going to pray in your name and you got to do it, right? And I just see Jesus. See, I think there's more comedy. I think there's more personality in the Gospels and in the life of Christ than we give credit. And I kind of see Jesus shaking his head at these two guys who he loves so much. And he's like, what do you guys want? I, I want to play this out a little bit. How, how, let's just see, what are they thinking? Okay, so you want me to do whatever you want. What, what is it that you're asking? And they said to him, verse 37, grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left in glory. We've seen your glory at the transfiguration. We've seen what it's like. We saw Moses and Elijah. And when the time comes, when you're in your glory, how about... You move Moses aside and you move Elijah aside and then you put me and my brother right next to you. In some of the translate, some of uh, in other places where this is recorded, the story goes that their mom came up and said, uh, Lord, I want you to do something. And then the sons kind of take over. This is like bold. And Jesus looks at them and says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup? that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism, which I am baptized. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism, which I am baptism. But to sit under my right or left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Tradition holds or not even tradition. The scripture records that James was ultimately martyred for his faith. He was killed, and he drank the same baptism that Jesus drank on the cross. John, he survived. It wasn't that they didn't try to kill him. We're going to get more into this, but God wasn't done with him, so he stayed alive even when he should have been dead. And so we see this this zeal, this, Lord, we want to get right up there with you. We're going to shift over to uh, Luke, number 7. And we're going to see this is my favorite story of the apostle of love. That's probably not my favorite story. It's, it's one that cracks me up. It shows the, the sons of thunder in all of their glory as opposed to how we think of them as the, you know, or him, the apostle of love. And so in Luke chapter 9, verse 49 through 46, there's a story. They've, they've been allowed in with Jesus. They are in the cool club, they think that they're special because not only are they disciples, but they're in the top three echelon that they get special access where the other guys don't get access, like the transfiguration, the raising. I think it was of Tabitha. There was a little girl who had died. They go in there. The three of them, the other guys stay out. Jesus raises this girl from the dead in their presence. And as we come to this, John was very 
outspoken and an elitist at times are the blanks if I didn't cover that. And so Jesus begins, well, let me get my place straight here. This is the fill in the blanks, kill me. So if we go back up to 46, we see, we see the disciples being guys. An argument started amongst them as to which of them might be the greatest. So Jesus is there. I don't know if he was like immediately there. I don't think he was there, but he kind of walks in on this. There's the 12 disciples. They're like, dude, when I was out, you should have seen what happened and how I responded. I was pretty cool. They're like, oh, dude, punch him in the shoulder. You should have seen what I did. I'm going to be the greatest amongst all of you. And Jesus is like walking in going, what is, he knows what they're thinking in their heart. And he took a child by his side as they're arguing, bickering with one another. Who's the coolest and who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus pulls this kid. This child who is in the very bottom rung of society. He puts this child by his side in verse 48. He said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least of you, pointing to this kid, who would be in the the bottom of the pecking order. This is the one who's great. And so in Jesus' economy, if you want to be great, you have to be the least. The last will be first and the first will be last. So John answered, this is beautiful. The only place he really gets the, the microphone in the gospels of his, like with his own voice. He says this, the apostle of love. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. So they were going along. They'd been out. There was somebody who they didn't really know. But they were casting out demons in Jesus' name. They were kind of like on the same team. But John said, they're not really in our inner circle, but he's using your name, but he doesn't even know you like we know you. And so we tried to prevent him because he doesn't follow along with us. So here's some guy casts out a demon in Jesus' name, and Peter comes up, stop it. You're not with us. You're not cool like us. You can't be casting out demons in Jesus' name. Only we can because we're the 12 disciples. It's hilarious, but he's not done yet. I got to find my place here. Verse 50, but Jesus said to him, do not hinder him. Like, John, are you kidding me? Like, don't hinder him for he who is not against you is for you. And when the days were approaching for his ascension, meaning that Jesus was going to be crucified, he was going to be buried and he'd rise on the third day. He was determined to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead of him and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans who were half Jew, half non-Jew. They were viewed by the Jews as a mixed breed. They, they were viewed that they had sort of washed out the faith and they hadn't stayed faithful. There was great tension between these two groups. He entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him. That's the Samaritans because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John saw this, the apostle of love, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They don't want us to pass through because we're Jews and they're Samaritans. So we hate them. How about we just pray a little prayer like some fire can come down, turn them into glass and we'll have straight passage. But he turned and rebuked them and, I, and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you're of. And Jesus like, oh, boys, I'm nearing the end of my earthly ministry. And this is where you're at. 
Like Jesus is about to be crucified. This is this is after three years of Jesus and he's still ready to press the nuclear weapon of wiping people out. This is how he's matured. And then the story goes, they get to Jerusalem, they go there. And as they get closer, Jesus trusts John and says, hey, go into town. You're going to find this room. Make preparation for the Passover meal. And I believe that the Passover meal is the event that radically shaped the Apostle John. I think in this night of Jesus's teaching, the light began to came on, come on in his heart. And he understood this whole message of love. I think this because of all of the Gospels, John gives by far the most emphasis to the Lord's Supper. Uh, Other places you get maybe a chapter or a part of a chapter. But in the Gospel of John, he devotes almost a quarter of his book. There are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. He devotes five of those chapters to the Lord's Supper. Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are all the event of that evening. The Lord's Supper was special to John. And the meal began with Jesus washing the disciples' feet, uh, an act that was reserved for the, the slave that was on the very bottom of the pecking order. But yet Jesus washes their feet. Peter was offended. And following the washing in John thirteen thirty four through 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is a a, a new commandment. Jesus makes it clear, love one another as I love you. I'm setting the example. In John's writing, the word love is used over and over and over and over again. John, when he looks at himself and he identifies himself in his writings near the end of his life, he only refers to himself. He only sees himself as a man whom Jesus loved. Tradition holds that at the end of his life, when he could barely walk, as he was the only apostle to, to be remaining, the others had died along the way or were killed along the way. They would bring him into church and they would set him in the front and he would only say a few words. Tradition holds that this is what he said every time he spoke. You are children of God. Love one another. Love one another. And that was his message. This man who was transformed By the message of love, the love of Christ, who walked with him, who was patient with him, who at the Lord's Supper gave him this message of love and unity with one another in love. And as they left, as Jesus prays that high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus doesn't pray, Lord, may your church grow and blossom and we plant churches all over with lots of people. He prays for unity. He assumes that the church is going to grow and he says, Lord, may they be united. May their love unite them that when the world looks at them, the world says, man, there's something so different. This isn't of man that for people to love each other like this, something radical has to happen. And Jesus says, if they have love for one another, the world will know that they're of me. They leave and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a fill in the blank for 10. You're on your own for the others that I skipped over. If you're even doing that. He goes to Gethsemane. Gethsemane sits in the midst of an olive grove, trees that produce olives. Gethsemane literally means press. When they would harvest the olives 
off of the tree. They would put them into a huge bag. They'd place a 2,000-pound stone on the olives, and then it would press slowly the oil out of the, the olives, and it, they, would, they would capture it. And so Jesus went to this garden called Gethsemane, which is called the press. And he would be pressed by the father with the weight of the world's sin that he knew that he was about to go through. He takes his disciples and he walks into this garden. He stops nine of them and he says, you nine sit here and pray. He takes Peter, James and John further into the garden. And he says, now you pray. And then he went a little farther from them and he began to pray and he wept and he the, the weight of what he was about to endure. Lord, if this, is, if this cup is possible to pass me, may it pass. But not my will, but your will be done. Scripture records that he sweated drops of blood, that the pressure was so great that his capillaries and his skin would popped and allowed blood to go out with the sweat. And as he's praying, he goes back. And how does he find Peter, James, and John? Sawn logs, snoring. What are you guys doing? Can you not pray for one hour? And as this rebuke happens, eventually the soldiers show up and they arrest Jesus. Jesus is arrested in the middle of the night in a cloak of darkness while Jerusalem slept. It was a a trial that had no no basis of law. They were going to execute him for they were furious with him. He gets whisked away. The Gospels record that two disciples were able to observe the whole event. Peter was one. He, Peter was able to view from the outside. John made it into the inner circle to, to view from a closeness. It's believed that John had a relative in the Sanhedrin that allowed him access to get in. So John followed him all the way in as he was being, uh, his flesh was being ripped off his back as they would take the whip with the, the shards of bone, they would whip it into the skin. The bones would get stuck in the skin and you'd have to rip it back. Flesh would come. And Jesus' body was mutilated in this point. Mo- many people would have died by the lashings that he received. And Peter or John and Peter are there watching. Jesus doesn't say anything to them during this time. As the crow, as the rooster crows, I almost did it. As the rooster crows for the third time, we're told that Jesus looks at Peter and Peter breaks down, recognizing his failure, recognizing that he had just made all of these statements to Jesus, that he would give his life and go to him to the death. But Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows three times. John continues to follow him to the cross. The Gospels only record one disciple being at the base of the cross, and that's John. He's the only one that's there present. And as he's dying on the cross, as he's gasping for breath, they would have to stand their legs up on the nails, scraping their back up along the thing. They would get their breath of air, and then they'd go back down, and crucifixion was ultimately a death of suffocation. And while he's on the cross, he looks down to John, not having said anything to John, Since John was asleep in the garden, he looks at John, he looks at Mary, and he says, woman, this is your son, son, this is your mother. Take care of her. Can you imagine what John's feeling this moment watching Jesus die? 
You know, I warned Bobby and Ruth that I was going to mention something. You know, this grass is beautiful out here. Like, it's just, it's, it's great. The kids all love it. You can go roll around and not get itchy. But I see that grass and I see the tables that, that Tom Abbott gave posthumously to the church. And, and they have far more significant meetings to me. On the night which Elle died, and I told Bobby, she said, it's okay to talk about this. We, we knew that he was, he was going. And he basically slipped out of consciousness, and we didn't think he was, like, coming back. And they said they were going to, like, with, with start withholding stuff. And he'd made it very clear what his intentions were and that, that all life-saving stuff was going to have to stop. And that decision was made. And then right after that, El, the old guy with a lot of fight in him, he looks up and he starts cracking jokes to us and, like, making all of us laugh. And we're, like, crying. He's like, man, something's important going on here. And we're like, yeah. But he looks at me in the eye and he reaches out his hand and he shook my hand and he said, thank you for taking care of Bobby. And I can't tell you those words. Like, I see that grass and I, I see El. Thank you for taking care of my wife. Can you imagine John at the cross, Jesus looking at him and saying, that's my mom. You take care of her. Those moments when people say stuff like that, it doesn't go away lightly. And tradition holds that, that John stayed with Mary until she died in Jerusalem. If you'll turn with the next slide here. Right here is Jerusalem. As you look at the rings, there's a, you might not be able to see, there's a green ring. This is the spread of Christianity during the first century. In the second century, you see that there's a gray ring. This is the spread of Christianity as, it, as it's going out to the known world. Tradition holds that John stayed in Jerusalem until A.D. 70 when Nero basically had Jerusalem destroyed. It was prophesied by Jesus that they're going to tear down the temple. Every stone's going to be turned on too. Like, this is ridiculous. How can you do this? And when, if you go to Jerusalem, and I hope you will, and you see these big old blocks of, of stone that are the size of Volkswagen bugs, because that's 2,000 pounds in my book. You know, 50 pounds is chicken feed. 2,000 pounds is a Volkswagen bug. They flipped them. They, they flipped them out to get the gold out, just as Jesus said. And then after that, Basically, John left. I don't know if he went up and around or if he traveled across to Ephesus. Ephesus, this great ministry center that Paul started during Acts, that he's planted the church there. Paul did so much in Ephesus, longest place of ministry for Paul in one location. John ended up in Ephesus. While he's in Ephesus, nearing the end of his life in AD 85 or 90, there's some there's always debate, you know, but you're talking about a 2,000-year-old letter that they're arguing over like 10 years of when it happened, which it, it, the historical reliability of the God, it's overwhelming. And so from Ephesus, he pens the letter of 1 John, or 1 John, but the Gospel of John. He writes the Gospel of John. He writes 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. During this time, a new emperor rose. His name is, I have to look it up here. Nero was the first one. After the death of Nero, Domitian came to power. Domitian was getting a little sick of John. John rose to power. This church was spreading. There were so many people following after this other Caesar, this Jesus, who was killed, but they claim was alive and risen. 
So he figured if he just killed John, he would be the last of all of the other apostles, the last of those that were originally with Jesus. He would quench the whole Christianity thing. And so Nero or Domitian had John boiled in a vat of oil is what tradition holds. And during the process, John survives. I always think of John as the apostle catfish. When I was a kid, I had a horrific incident in third grade. I wanted to be a man. I wanted to hunt and gather and provide my own food. I didn't really know what that related to, but you all have seen little boys. I caught my first catfish. I killed it by hitting it over the head with a stick. Put it in the bucket, and there it sat for about an hour or so. And then it started twitching again. I'm like, I got to hit that thing harder. So I hit it again, and I was certain I'd killed it this time. And I don't remember, I, I don't know if I knew you had to gut a fish or anything, but I, I did eventually barbecued it. And then I put it on the grill, and the thing started flopping again. So I gave up my quest to feed myself. I don't know what I did with the fish. I didn't eat it. But ever since, I'm like afraid eating catfish because I don't think you can kill those things. <laughs> and that's the Apostle John. So there's John. He survives this incident. His body is burned, scarred. Dominician, who is terribly superstitious, then is more horrified that the Apostle John, who is testifying of this other Caesar, Jesus, doesn't die. So they don't know what to do with him. So they have him exiled from Ephesus to this island Patmos, which there's nothing there. It's a rocky piece of nothingness. If you go there today, you'll find a, a cave. And they'll say today, that's where the Apostle John stayed. And so there he was. Discouraged, I imagine. And where he gets the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not revelations, plural. It is the revelation of Christ. Christ shows him all his glory and what's going to happen. And he pens revelation. So as he writes, John is not like Paul. Paul is linear in thinking. He's easy to, to take a book that Paul wrote and to, to, to lay it out in sort of, um, you know, bullet points, not bullet points, you know, when you do like Roman numeral one, then you, what's that called? Outline. It's easy to outline. John, you can't outline. He's like got ADHD. He kind of just free flows, but he's, he's terribly black and white. There is no gray. There is love. Or there's light and darkness. There's love and another contrasting thing. There's, there is no middle ground. He sees things like an elderly people tend to get less gray in their thinking. Like I love George, George Farrington. There's no middle ground. It's either this way or that way. There's not a third option. It's this is or that. And I think you see life clearer the older you get. And John is very much this way. And as we get to the first letter of John, it's a follow-up of his Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is clearly written to non-believers. We're told in John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So every verse from the first word to the last word of John, the Gospel of John, it all fits into fulfilling that purpose. He is writing to lead somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus to belief in Jesus. 
Now, when you get to 1 John, which we will unpack more, but just very quickly here, the four purposes of John, we see in these, I write to you so that. The first one is found in 1 John chapter 1 through verse, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. In these first four verses, he writes to promote joyful living. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested that we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father, manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Next week, we're going to really unpack this. But as he starts out, he said, I'm writing you these things that our joy, that my joy and your joy could be made complete. Because when you know Jesus' love, it transforms you. It changes you, that you're joyful. I love Charles Swindoll. He's one of the preachers who's influenced me the most. And when he talks about verse 4, he writes as a peer. He's in his 80s. And he's like, I love this, that John at the end of his life in his 80s is not a crotchety old man. But he's filled with joy. And he just wants the joy to be picked up by his children, those in the faith who are younger than him. In Second John, he says, I write to you, little children, um, or my joy is made complete when you're walking with the Lord. That he understands true joy, true peace, true happiness comes when you walk with the Lord. He wants to promote righteous living. So if you go to chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He wants you to have victory over sin. By no means is he saying that you're going to attain sinlessness in this life, but that you can not be dominated by sin. For he continues, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That last phrase jumps out to me. But for those of the whole world, this is the same guy that begged Jesus to prayer, pray that fire would come down and destroy all of the Samaritans. This is the guy who, somebody who was in Jesus' name but not a part of their group, he ran interference to stop them. But then he writes some of the most well-known Bible verses, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. That he's not just our propitiation of sins, but for those of the whole world. For those Muslims in a dark part of the world, Jesus is their propitiation, and he wants them to come to faith in Christ. Just as much as he wanted you to come to faith in Christ. The third thing, to promote discerning disciples. John is very clear that there is truth. There is truth. And he wants the disciples to know the truth, that they wouldn't be misled. It's just like what we talked about in Colossians, that Gnosticism had crept in, that they were trying to distort who Jesus was. And in verse 26 of chapter 2, he says, These things I have written to you, concerning those who are trying to deceive you. There are those trying to lead you astray about who Jesus is. He says, verse 27, As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, 
And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. And he leads into one of my favorite passages in first John. He says, abide in Jesus, walk with him, know his love. As you walk with him, he transforms you so that when he appears, you don't have to shrink away in shame. It doesn't say if you're Not walking with the Lord, if you're in sin, if you're having a difficult time and you're struggling in your faith, it doesn't say that you're going to be banished into hell because you had a moment of stumbling. But he encourages us that if we walk with him, that when he appears and he's going to appear, we don't have to shrink away in shame. The final part in chapter five, he wants to assure believers of their faith, kind of dovetailing with this abiding In chapter 5, verse 11, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. That seems like a pretty extreme statement, does it not? This wouldn't be very well received in our culture. Oh, how can you say that absolute truth? John, old man, black and white, Jesus is the life. He knows. If you have the son, you have life. If you do not have the son, you don't have life. These things I have written to you who believe. In the name of the son of God, so that you may know. Circle that word no. Highlight that word no. This word no is used some 40 times in 1 John. That you may know that you have eternal life. He wants the believer to be assured of their faith. So often Satan wants to get us off course. Oh, I stubbed my toe and I swore. I'm not going to heaven. Oh, I fell off the wagon again. Jesus is so sick of me doing this and there's no way I'm going to heaven. I can't tell you how many times I said that in my own life. Our salvation is not secured Based on our own righteousness, we have none. It's based on his righteousness. That he who knew no sin took on the sin of the world. And by faith in him, through God's grace, we're given eternal life. And God wants us to know that we have assurance of our salvation based on the work of Christ. I'm so excited about this book. I hope that we grow in our faith going through 1 John. Father, I do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you for your word. Father, we pray that as we go through this book, that you would fill us with joy, that we would walk closely with Jesus, that we would abide in him. And as we walk with him, Lord, that you would give us victory in areas in our life that we stumble in sin so often. Father, we pray that you would shore up our doubts, Lord, help us to be grounded in our assurance of salvation, that we would have confidence in the one who died for us. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. We thank you that it's not on our merits, Lord, on our good works that we're trying to do more good than bad in our lifetime, for we would be a a helpless case. But Lord, we thank you that Jesus and his righteousness suffered all for us. Father, we pray that his love would so fill our lives, that we would be so compelled by it, that you would um, send us out, Lord, to be your agents.
Father, that we would reflect Christ to all in our world. We thank you, Lord, so much. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen.